you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with him we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are very grateful for the privilege of having a copy of your word uh, in our homes, in our hands, in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that you have given to us from heaven for revealing yourself to us and revealing uh, the goodness of your ways. We pray, Father, as we meditate upon these words this day, Lord, that you would teach us the the higher ways, the, the better ways, those ways that are more valuable uh, than anything else that that we would pursue on this earth. Lord, we do pray that you would give us the mind of Christ as we meditate upon this word of Christ today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you've heard the story about the old miser who called his doctor, his lawyer, and his minister to his deathbed in order to express his last wish. They say that you can't take it with you, said the dying man. But I'm going, to, I'm going to do it. I'll be the first one to do it. I have three envelopes, each with $100,000 in them in cash. And I want you to take this envelope, each of you, and just before the casket is closed, to shove it into the casket so I can be buried with all my money. And, of course, they all promised to do just as he said. And at the end of the funeral service, each dropped their envelope inside the casket. But on the way home, the doctor, the lawyer, and the minister were all riding together, and the conscious, conscience-stricken doctor confided in the others, well, I'm building a clinic, so I took out $50,000 for the clinic, and I put the other 50000 in the casket. And then a minute later, the lawyer said, well, <laughs> I needed uh, some money for my legal defense fund, so I took $75,000 out, and I put 25000 into the casket. And of course, the, the preacher said to the other brothers, gentlemen, I, I'm just ashamed of both of you, for I at least wrote him a check for the full amount. <laughs> you know that joke only works if there's some truth to it, right? <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> uh, there is a stereotype of, of greedy pastors and other men of that nature who mismanage the funds that are given to them and are always asking for more money for one reason or another. And so you know that that is a a recurring problem in our culture. 
Uh, in fact, most of you, I, I think anybody over the age of probably 30, 40, would be familiar with the name Jim Baker, right? Uh, it was a household name for many, many years. He was a televangelist who started the PTL Club with his wife, Tammy Frey, from 1974 till 1987 until he was forced to resign over a cover-up over some hush money that he gave to a woman who had accused him of rape. While under investigation, they found some other misdealings financially as well, if you remember, and he was the one who had started that really nice Christian um, theme park, Heritage USA. It wasn't actually too far from where I grew up, so I'm very familiar with this place. And, of course, uh, he was skimming off the top uh, and rerouting funds to his own personal account. Uh, toward the end of his ministry there, he, was, he, he had a take-home pay of well over a million dollars a year. And this is in the early 80s. That should tell you something. Something's not quite right here. Um, eventually, they did catch him. He spent five years in prison. Uh, and he wrote a book. After all this was over, the title was simply, I Was Wrong. And there's a picture of him looking sad. I was wrong, you know, kind of thing in that sense. And uh, in which he admitted all of his faults and his sins. So the question is, where is Jim Baker now? What's the rest of the story, right? You know what happened back in the 80s. Where is he now? Well, he's remarried again. He's got a Tammy take two, if you will. Uh, He is back at televangelism again and has reestablished the PTL club. Don't know how people would still be willing to give to this, but now he's moved to Missouri, sort of does something similar. But in this case, he no longer preaches the simple health and wealth gospel. Instead, he focuses on the end times and preparing for the second coming of Christ. And instead of raising support for a Christian theme park, now he sells emergency survival products online to those who are worried about impending global disasters that he himself keeps prophesying will happen. Interesting. If you go on his website, which I did this week, you can buy $800 survival food buckets to outlast the global disasters. And if you have a a few other family members you want to help protect as well, you can buy what's called the Peace of Mind Final Countdown Bucket for $4,500 for some really bad-tasting food. Apparently, some very liberal non-Christian people have been tasting the food to see how bad this really is, and they all swear it's the worst thing you'll ever eat. He also sells shovels, water purifiers, solar power flashlights, fuelless generators, and the like at considerable markups for anyone who's dumb enough to buy these products from him. But of course, probably the best-selling item that he still has online is his book, I Was Wrong, in which he is still profiting off of his fake apologies to the thousands or perhaps millions of people that he stole money from. I have no idea how people like this stay in business. It just doesn't make sense to me. Please, if anybody here gives to any Jim Baker ministries, please stop now. This is a false prophet. He has been stealing money from people for years. Last week I shared with you the greedy tax collector Zacchaeus, right? Upon coming to faith in Christ, what did he do? He immediately offered half of his goods to the poor and then vowed to repay four times the amount of everything that he had stolen, which he did. True repentance. Jim Baker wrote a book in which he continues to profit off the people that he stole money from. Not the same mentality, not the same spirit at all. And it's precisely because of men like Jim Baker today 
that the church in America continues to get a bad rap and all pastors are accused of being greedy for money. It's because of people like that. It's, it's not, not anything new, though, as you know. We, we just shared from the passage earlier that Mark read from of uh, leaders in the church who are stealing offerings from God and, and doing all sorts of other evil things. So the problem in our passage this morning is the Apostle Paul is being accused of this himself. He's being accused of being some sort of charlatan, of some sort of, uh, you know, again, a peddler of God's word, just trying to profit off the, the people in Corinth. And so in our text this morning, Paul is writing letters of recommendation for other men who are going to be coming to the church of Corinth in order to take up an offering for the poor in Jerusalem, for those who have lost their, their lands and lost their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you remember these false teachers that come into the church and they were accusing Paul of things left and right, and so what he wants to do is he wants to continue where he left off, continuing to build for the kingdom of God, but in order to do that, he wants to make sure everything's above board. He wants to make sure that there's no way that anyone could accuse him of any financial misdealings. There's no way anyone could accuse him of of trying to profit off of them in any way. And if you remember, particularly in Corinth, Paul never took a cent for, from anybody there because they were accusing him of these things. He continued to work as a tent maker. He even had the Philippians help support him in his ministry so he wouldn't have to ask for any money from the Corinthians at all because he was being accused. But in order to prove the honor of his administration, not only does he not take any, any money for himself, he never touches any of the money that is given for any of this work either. He makes a point of never being the one who handles the money. Instead, he uh, has this coalition of men, respectable men, that everyone knows well. They, all high, they hold them in high regard. They're the ones that will both collect the money and also deliver it to its intended recipients. Of course, this is a, a rule that most pastors follow today as well in America. From the very beginning, I've always made it a rule as a pastor, I don't handle money at all. If someone tries to give me money, the first thing I do is let's go to the office, let's go put it where it needs to go. We even have a box over here for temporary mouse. If someone has money, it's like, there's a box right here, go put it right here. Don't hand me your money. Not because I'm afraid I'm going to steal anybody's money, but because there's always that perception that pastors are trying to take something from you, which just isn't the case. That's not our desire at all. I have no idea how much money any person in this church gives. Never do I want to know. Uh, that's another problem that we have in churches. You do. I, I, I've been in churches where the pastor knew exactly how much money somebody contributed to this fund or that fund or the other. I have no idea. I don't want to know. And the reason for that is because of what James tells us in his epistle uh, of the dangers of favoritism, of favoring the rich over the poor, treating with the poor, the poor with with dishonor in order to elevate those who have gold rings on their hands and things of that nature. And so again, we, we try to do as many things as we can to not give that impression whatsoever. And I love the fact, if you're new to this church, if you haven't noticed this already, we don't even have an offering plate that's passed around where anybody's forced to give anything. We have offering boxes in the back. If you want to give, great. If you don't, fine. There's no sense of constraint. There's no sense of we need your money desperately. We're begging you. Nothing of that nature at all. Because we don't see this as an act of arm twisting. We see it as an act of grace that God gives us in our hearts to contribute to something that would give honor to his name. But not only does Paul distance himself from the actual collection of money, he also removes himself from even choosing the men that will come to collect the money. Because 
Even then, he could be accused somehow of manipulating, of handpicking these men that somehow would maybe skim off the top and maybe give him a little bit of it as well. And so you'll notice what he does in this passage is he has the church in Philippi and other churches in Macedonia that are electing their own men that they respect, that they honor, that will come and deliver their gifts to Jerusalem and also to help collect some of the gifts from the Corinthians uh, themselves. And he also instructs the church in Corinth to choose their own men that he also will write letters of recommendation for all of them so that they all can go together delivering the gifts to Jerusalem. And so Paul personally sends Titus as his own representative just to make sure all of this is done in the right manner in an orderly way. Uh, but other than that, it's these men. It's a coalition of at least seven men that are coming to deliver these gifts to the church in Jerusalem. Now, why would all these men be needed? Well, just in regards to safety and security alone, you can imagine if someone is collecting money of any kind, especially of coins, they would have more coins than they would have dollar bills like we would have today. That's a, that's a heavy load. They're having to carry a good amount of, of, of money and other things that could be traded for value. Again, they're going to have to take this on a boat across the Mediterranean Sea. They're going to have to take it through sparse woodlands, and then they're going to have to take it through congested city streets in Jerusalem to get it to the people that actually need it. So you can imagine, I mean, you remember uh, the, the incident in, in the Gospel of Luke in which the man was robbed on his way on the road, right? Uh, this happens often. And so there had to be a, a group of men that would help protect this, but also for the sake of accountability to show that these men are respectable men, men well-known that would do what they said they would do, would do what they were given the task to do. Now, some people might think this is overkill. It's interesting, in the church, I always have two different perspectives from different people. Some people will say, you know, we're saints, and you know, we, we don't expect saints to act that way. And then others, they, they, they look too much at the sin and assume everybody's going to do something evil in that regard. But, but because we all come from different perspectives on these things, there will always be some, both within the church and without, who will assume evil when, even when there is no evil. So there's, a, there's an importance of always being above board uh, with our dealings, particularly with finances. I mean, if you think about it, none of us even, even have the same view of money and how we deal with money. We, we all uh, spend it differently. We all plan to use it differently. We all keep an account of it differently. So it's even more important from a church's perspective that we do we take the high road and do even more than what you would expect us to do to make sure that we're not giving anyone the impression that we're doing something uh, either illegally or, or in, in some other manner that would cause you to distrust the purpose for and how we use our money. I mean, I, I think my, my biggest concern oftentimes with any nonprofit that you give money to is, is the money actually getting to the people it said that it's going to? I mean, I, even with the people that are collecting money at Walmart, you know, at Christmas time, I'm like, how do I know this is actually getting to them? How much percentage of the money is actually being used for some administrative branch before it gets to these people? I want an accounting. I want to know where, how it's being spent. And I think you have the right to know that as well with every dollar that's spent so that you know that what you're giving to. And so after um, dealing with these things, he wants to, again, be above board in every possible way so that no one could accuse him or his people of evil. Um, and so it's interesting, even, even in our church, I remember when I first got here, um, no one was doing anything wrong or evil at all, but uh, I noticed um, that, well, actually I was informed that we had sometimes one officer having to collect the money by himself and sometimes giving the, that money to the bank. 
And this is probably one of the most godly men in our church, not a person that I would question whatsoever in terms of integrity. But at the same time, there's that sense of, well, somebody can accuse him of stealing. Someone could easily put him in a position where he would be falsely accused. It's just not a safe thing. And so one of the first things we did after I arrived was to make sure that we always had two people doing things. We, we put a, a safe inside the church so we could immediately put any temporary monies that were given in there so that we'd make sure we had two people giving whatever we need to do as far as the money goes. And the same thing with missions. We, we had some concern as far as how is this money actually being given to the people? Is it actually doing what it says that we, we said it would do? Uh, and any time there was a question about that, we went back and we looked at it again to make sure there would be no uh, suspicion about how that money is being used. And so we, we changed a few policies to make sure that uh, we were being above board, even with the any hint of sin. And so uh, because everyone has different views on how we spend our money and things of that nature, and because we're all wired differently, we, you can see why Paul would, would do this. And so even... If you think about it, even the first, uh, the men that we think are deacons in Acts chapter 7, you remember that? Uh, where seven men are chosen by the apostles, it says to serve the tables uh, in order to minister to the needs of the Greek-speaking widows uh, who were also in Jerusalem at the time because they were being overlooked. And so the apostles lay hands on these seven men to serve at tables. So the, the question is, are they actually serving meals at tables? Are they sort of like a, a table server, if you will? Or are they someone who's sitting at a table who's collecting money and then distributing that money to those in need? It could be a both and, but I would probably lean toward the latter rather than the former. It's the idea that they're choosing men of integrity, men of honor, who purposely would be used to deal with these more monetary more material needs, if you will. So the apostles were giving themselves to what? To the Word of God and to prayer, and then these men were also dealing with some material needs that, that had to be dealt with, that they could be entrusted to do. And so you'll notice one of the, the, the qualifications for a deacon in First Timothy chapter 3 particularly says that they should not be what? Greedy for dishonest gain. There's a reason that that's in there. It's not even given in, in terms of the elders. The elders are told not to be lovers of money, but it goes further with the deacons because they're the ones who are having to deal with money more often than not. And so as a result, we want to choose men who are honest, men that can be trusted and things of that nature. And so these safeguards are put in place to make sure that no one would think, you know, I don't know if I can give to this because I don't know where it's going. I mean, it's, it's interesting, too. I mean, even, even the types of missions and the types of things that you participate in, you want to know that it's going to a good cause. You want to know that it's being used wisely. You want to know that there's going to be some profit from our labor and from our giving. And so, again, Paul says, let's make sure that everything is done exactly in the right way, in an orderly manner, in a way that would give honor to God. Yeah, honestly, this passage is sort of... Uh, the key passage that you would use in terms of how do we actually wisely take up giving and do with it what God wants. It's a lot easier to avoid the censure of man, though, than it is the censure of God. As you can imagine, a dishonest man can easily fool the rest of us into thinking that he's a truthful person, a man of integrity, but he can't fool God if that's not the case. I mean, we see this a number of times in the Old Testament, the New Testament as well. Uh, if you remember uh, the man Achan who had stolen, I think it was uh, 
200 shekels of silver and 50 shekels of gold and some very uh, beautiful uh, garments from the, the area of Shinar. And all of this was devoted unto God, but he had taken it for himself and buried it under his tent. No one knew. Not a soul saw him do this. But the Lord saw it and brought him to account for it. In the same way, as you know, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament also you know, had taken a, a plot of land and had sold it and had kept some of the money back for themselves, which they could have done, but they promised to the church and to God that they were giving all of it. And yet they lied. No one knew that they lied, but God did, and he held them accountable. So again, if you see these as examples in the Old Testament as well as the New, don't automatically assume that everyone who's in the position is automatically going to do the right thing which is why even then we have safeguards in place in the church of Christ to make sure as much as we can that things would be done in a good and orderly manner. And so in, in this particular case, uh, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 4, saying, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man, so that the church would be above reproach. Uh, it's interesting, in verse 23, the Apostle Paul calls the messengers of Christ, he calls them the glory of Christ in this example. And the, the reason for that is because these offerings that you give are not just offerings to help with the poor. They're not just offerings to help your neighbor who is in need, but it's an offering that's given directly to God first. It's something that is, is worthy of his worship, something worthy of his name, and so these men are also designated to make sure that, they're, that the, 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 the intent with which you gave it goes to that need. So it would only make sense that uh, if there were dishonest men that were carrying out these things, they could not give glory to God, but rather the other way around. Which is why the joke that I told early on makes sense to us, because we've seen it when it goes awry. We, we've seen it when it doesn't work out the way uh, it ought to. And that's why we have all these safeguards in place. Um, let me put it this way. Um, having not grown up in a Presbyterian church, uh, but in a different background, um, I have really come to cherish a Presbyterian form of government for a, a number of things. Uh, one of those things being we have this really boring book a really awfully boring book called the Book of Church Order. And uh, that book basically contains the wisdom of elders and pastors from hundreds of years prior to us. And in that book, it already knows <laughs> and warns us of things that could happen and will happen if we don't take certain precautions, uh, certain safety measures. And, and it's interesting um, because I've met with pastors here in Fenton uh, for just you know, random conversations for coffee. And every now and then they'll share something with me of some egregious, horrible thing that happened in the church. And they're immediately like, how do I respond to this? And, and I immediately say, well, uh, all you need to do is this, 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 this. You know, real simple. <laughs> there's, a, there's a process for this. And, and each time they're like, how do you know all this? I'm like, I don't know, I'm just a godly man, you know, in that sense. But no, um, I, I tell them, I said, well, it's because I'm a part of a denomination that has taken these things seriously for hundreds of years and, and knew that this would be a, a problem and recorded all of these things for the younger generation so we wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel and try to protect the church all over again, right? 
And so I can follow these things that have already been laid out for us, wisdom of the ages, if you will, and immediately I have somewhere to go. I have something to, to keep the church safe if we do it properly. But I can tell you there are many other churches that don't have that. And as a result, you do have things that are done without integrity. You have things that are done without the safety net. You have done things that are done um, that, that bring great dishonor to Christ. If we do that, it's because we're not following the rules that are laid out for us. Oftentimes they're doing because they don't know any better, which is, which is sad. But one of the safeguards that I really appreciate in our particular denomination is, is one that uh, most of you probably don't appreciate. <laughs> and it's, it, in fact, it even sounds bad on paper. Uh, there's something that the session is required to do uh, in every aspect, over every aspect of the ministry of the church, and it's called review and control. It just sounds bad, doesn't it? But basically what it means is that the elders are required to review every attempt at ministry that anyone in this church wants to do and to control how it's being carried out. Why? Because we just love to control people. No. In fact, it takes a lot more work to do it this way. But because we believe that the name of Christ ought to be honored and glorified in everything that we do, and that there has to be a process to ensure that we try to do that to the best of our ability. And so that means not just one person considers something, but sometimes two people consider it, sometimes many people are looking at the same thing, which means it goes a little bit slower to get things done, but we do that on purpose to make sure that we're not doing anything heretical, that we're not doing anything that would cause great um, disparagement to the name of Christ. Uh, we see this again and again in churches, and all of a sudden the church implodes because... Uh, some horrible thing that was carried out. Again, that doesn't mean that we do that perfectly. doesn't mean that we don't make our own mistakes and, and uh, commit our own sins. But it does mean that we have the, the proper safety net in place to try to protect the church from harm. And so we, we literally have to overlook all of these things. And that's, that's very difficult, I think, um, for um, people that didn't come from a Presbyterian background especially. Uh, if, you, if you come from a background in which you say, well, you know what, I have a good idea. I'm going to do this, and you just start doing it. And then you come to the Presbyterian Church, and you realize, oh, this is going to take two months to get this passed. It's very frustrating and quite annoying. But I assure you, the reason why we do it this way is because we want to protect you, the church, and the name of Christ. And so everything's done very slowly in that regard to try to do that to the best of our ability. As leaders of the church, we don't do it because we're, we're you know, having some sort of power play, but mainly for the reputation of all involved. But in addition to that, another reason why we are very careful with how we give, how we do our different aspects of ministry, is also for the sake of fostering more sanctification amongst the members of the church themselves. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, there's a passage in Ephesians 4. In that passage... Paul is giving thanks, basically, for all the elders and the pastors and teachers and others uh, of leadership within the church, and he says that those men have been set aside as gifts to the church in order to equip the church to do the works of the Lord. So in other words, our job is not simply to protect the church, but also to equip the church to do the work of the of the Lord together, that we all would do it in that sense. And so uh, if you look in our text this morning, verse 23, I want to point this out. Paul calls Titus, he says, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. 
Now, that, that seems kind of strange because he's sending Titus to take their money. And you think, well, how is he giving them a benefit? It sounds like they're, they're coming at a loss rather than a benefit, at least in terms of their money. So what is the benefit that they would get by giving money to this particular cause? Um, there's another passage uh, that helps us to, to get at the meaning of this. Earlier on in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, verse 24, where Paul uses the same language in reference to Timothy, Silas, Silas and himself, he says, we are workers together with the Corinthians for your joy. So in some sense, he's saying in this particular passage, he's sending Titus to the Corinthians to take up their offering for another church in another part of the world. Why? For the Corinthians' joy. It's not just because it's a need that needs to be met in Corinth. It's not just because it gives glory and honor to God, but also because through this aspect of grace in terms of giving, they're going to grow in their own sanctification. They're, they're going to grow in their own understanding of the love, the joy, and the peace of Christ. Um, it's interesting. Even if you think about it, what are the two greatest commandments? What are they? And then love your neighbor as yourself, right? Have you ever thought of it this way? Why is loving your neighbor important at all? <laughs> I know it, 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 because it summarizes all these other commandments we're supposed to fulfill as well. But if you think about it, the reason why loving your neighbor is so important is because it actually has to do with the first commandment. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you are loving the likeness of God in another person. What does that mean? It means you're loving God. You're loving his image by showing love for your neighbor. So it's very important that when we are trying to help you grow in your faith, in your love for God, that we also teach you how to love your neighbor. We teach you how to love the likeness and the image of God in another person, particularly when someone's in need, but, but at other times as well. Every aspect of the people that you walk around, even unbelievers, they still bear the likeness and image of God. And by our growth in our ability to love them, we're learning to love God. And so the reason why Paul thinks this act of giving is so important is not because they have to have the Corinthians give to this need. That is not their main desire. That's not their main purpose. Rather, their main purpose is that the Corinthians would enter more fully into the joy of the Lord. In order for them to do that, they have to enter into the works of the Lord. They have to enter into the mindset of Christ to begin to do the same things that he does, you see. If we don't get that concept, then we'll always see giving in the wrong light. We'll always think of giving just in material things and seeing only material losses and not in terms of spiritual gains. If, 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 our, if the greatest desire of the Lord, even in our horrible circumstances, is that we would be conformed to the image of God, then every other aspect of our lives, everything that we do is also to be conformed to the image of God. If that's the greatest good that you could possibly receive, that you could possibly gain in this life, then it ought to be the role of the elders and the pastors and the deacons of the church to help you in that regard. And so the reason why giving is highly encouraged in that regard is so that you could take less value in terms of material things and put more value in the things that actually matter, more value in terms of your relationship with Christ. What does Paul say? Philippians 3.8, remember what he says there? He says, I count 
everything in this world as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or trash in order that I may gain Christ. So he's basically saying that instead of it being a loss to lose his financial material goods, he considers the gain because he's gaining something better by giving away the things that have hindered his joy. In the same way, it's very important that churches and Christian leaders especially maintain an honorable administration in how we encourage giving, how we take up the offering, how we distribute the gifts that are given so that we would not in any way lose sight of that important truth that giving is for our own sanctification more than anything else. It's for our own joy in the Lord. If we think in some way it's because it's going to benefit some other person or it's going to hurt us materially, and that's all we think of, then we won't give, you see. We, we won't uh, trust to give because the church is not doing it right. Uh, but rather, uh, we are trying to follow the principles that, that God has laid out in Scripture. You know, Solomon says, unless the Lord builds the house, what? The laborers labor in vain, right? Well, in, in the same way, you could say, unless the Lord inspires the offering, the giver gains no advantage. The church is not edified in the least. Uh, for, for the acts are, are not those of mature Christians walking in love, but rather those who are still trying to earn something from God, still trying to impress men. They're not doing it with the right intention, not with the right motive. So what good would it do me to say, I really, guys, I need your money. I need you to give to this cause. How, what good am I giving to you if you're not doing it for the right purpose? I'm not giving you any good. Even if you, even if you gave millions of dollars tomorrow and we decided to use it in lots of different ways, if my people are dying spiritually and are not growing close to the Lord, what good does it account? Nothing. So you have to understand, when, when we, when, even when we talk about these issues and talk about terms of giving, it has nothing to do with what we need. It has to do with how you benefit, spiritually speaking. How you grow more in your trust of the Lord. How you grow more in your love for the Lord. How you grow more in the joy of the Lord. If we don't see it that way, I want to show you an example in, uh, in the New Testament. One of the last, uh, it is the last book of the Bible. You remember John uh, the apostle has these visions that he's seeing of the, the saints in heaven, right? Uh, you remember in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, these saints are gathered around the throne of God, and they keep saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive wealth and honor and glory and blessing. What's my point here? <laughs> Even in heaven... They're wanting to give him more wealth. He's worthy of it. They're wanting to give them, him more glory, more honor, more of everything they have. They're wanting to give it all to him because he's worthy of it. They know that they're not worthy of it. They want to give it to him out of love for him, out of love for what he has done for them in terms of their own uh, salvation, in terms of their redemption through the blood shed on the cross. They want to give more to him. That's the, that's the mindset of the saints in heaven. They're not blessed because they've received as much as they're blessed because they want to give. They want to give and give and give more offerings of praise, more thanksgiving, more of everything, more of their lives unto Christ because that's when they fully enter into that joy. It's 
I mean, in fact, if you think of it this way, in terms of, you know, if, if you get some financial assistance from someone in, in, your, in your need, that's a good thing. It really is. And it can help you, materially speaking, in a lot of different ways. But does it necessarily increase your joy in the Lord? Think of it this way. If you had, you know, all of a sudden you couldn't, make, you couldn't pay your bills and then someone came in and they assisted you and now you could pay your bills, does that immediately turn your eyes to Christ? Not necessarily. In fact, it's a warning that's given to the Israelites uh, before they go into the promised land. He says, once you get all this wealth, is that necessarily going to make you trust Christ and love Christ? No. But the person who, in accordance with the, the intent of the law of God in terms of, of giving, is now I'm giving out of love. I'm giving not just out of the need for my brother who is in the image of Christ, but I'm giving because I want to honor Christ as I'm doing that, there's even greater blessing than any blessing I could have gotten from receiving something good. The blessing of giving is, is exponentially greater than the blessing of receiving. The saints in heaven get this, and that's why they just want to constantly praise, because praise is their giving. It's their offering. That's, they're giving it to him. Over, there's no money he needs at all, obviously, but he's giving them over and over again from from everything that they have, their very being, their very selves. They're offering their bodies as living sacrifices unto God. But think of it this way. Even if believers could take their, their possessions, their money with them into heaven. So say, say you know, literally you had a brother and, and you did slip in $100,000 into his casket, right? And somehow he was able to take that with him to heaven. What would happen? He'd immediately throw it at Jesus' feet. Because he wants to give him all his wealth. He wants to give him his very soul, his very being, because he is so overwhelmed by the love of God, there's nothing else that he desires more than just being at the right hand of God, in his presence, in his joy. When someone gets that concept, they want to give. When they don't get that concept, no matter of arm twisting is going to change their minds. It's always going to be seen as something loss. Something is awful, not something is good, you see. And, and that, that's why, even as a church, we're not you know, trying to do any type of, you know, uh, this, is, this is normally, if I were, I, the, the church background I grew up in, this is the time where I said, okay, everybody close your eyes now, bow your heads, and I want you to you know, make a vow that you're going to give five times more than you gave last week. And we're going to write some secret things on a piece of paper, and, and, uh, and I'm going to go around and see if you gave enough. And then we might take a second collection because there wasn't enough. We might take a third because there wasn't enough then. I've actually been to a church where they, they herded us around uh, a Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket. I think I've told you this before. We had to get out of our seats and go up in front of the church four times because they didn't take up enough money because they, you had to do it. So they forced you in front of everyone to give your money. That is not at all what we want. If the church tomorrow could not afford to keep our doors open, that would not be my greatest concern. My greater concern would be to the people in my church, are their hearts growing warm toward the Lord? Or are they growing cold out of indifference and carelessness because they have no sight of the kingdom of heaven? They have no desire for the things of God. All they care about is their possessions. That would be my greatest fear. It really would. So with all the things that are being said in this particular passage that Paul is sharing with us, no, uh, we try to do everything above board uh, financially in terms of that, but, but to know 
It's for the sake of encouraging you to more fully trust the Lord. Not just us, but to trust the Lord with your giving. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we, um, we come to you. We know that uh, this is not a passage that, um, <laughs> that um, we probably have given a whole lot of thought to. It's probably not a passage that we were expecting to come and hear this day. That We, we, know, we want something that's going to benefit us immediately. Uh, we don't think long-term as well as we ought to. We certainly don't think in terms of a heavenly mindset as much as we do that earthly mindset. We pray, Father, as the Word continues to marinate within our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to understand these truths, perceive something of the glory of God, trust more in the the riches of heaven, believe more in the assurance of salvation in Christ Jesus, that you would give us a greater vision for the, the name of Christ being lifted up in our community, all around the world. Lord, that you would give us something to give to, that you would give us something to offer our lives for, that we know that we only really spend our time on the things that we consider worthy and valuable of our time. Lord, we pray that you would teach us what is valuable, what is worthy, and that we would have the same response as the saints of heaven. Oh, Lord, the Lamb of God, you are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. 